Hello, my name is Tina Camellia and this is The Starting Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation, data and democracy. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that the transcript and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, a supplement to every main edition of The Starting Block. Now in the next lane, Emmanuel Lallere, a tech and lifestyle-focused content creator. In this first part of our conversation, we'll focus on the lifestyle side and we'll get some reviews of the trends and news that made the headlines this month. Ready? Let's go. Who is Emmanuel? And um, is he the same as his online persona that we all get to see? Emmanuel is quite funny when you ask that question because also like there's been Emmanuel 1.0 and Emmanuel 2.0 and 3.0, right? So there's been many evolutions. But currently right now, as I am, I would say I'm a content creator who is also an avid runner who, you know, likes to, um, you know, whether it's through the medium of photos or videos or, you know, words, or it doesn't really matter. I just, you know, love being in the creative space and where I believe that creativity is not just in the arts. You can be creative in anything. But what does it mean to be an online creator? How long have you been doing this? Is this something that you had always wanted to do? It's been a while, I think since 2007. So I started initially as a programmer. Um, I started coding um, out of high school for, I think, three, four years, um, you know, in high school, then out of high school. You know, I've always been this kind of a person where I like to take things apart, right? Like, so if I get like a new tech, I always like, you know, take it apart, you know, look at what is inside. And like, I grew up in a kampong, right? So for our international audience, that's like a village, right? So I grew up in a literal village. So it was like very weird seeing this guy who grew up in a village like obsessed about like, you know, all this new tech stuff. I used to like, you know, travel to actually go buy like tech magazines, like T3. So um, one thing that I noticed was that, and I, I think that was what, where, what led me to my creative journey was that many people used to ask me like a lot about many things, right? Kimano, how do you do this? Kimano, how do you do that? You're the tech support. <laughs> no, I've always been the tech support, right? So uh, when I came out of high school, uh, you know, everybody goes to college immediately, right? So, but I didn't want to, if anything, I was not interested in going to college at all. Yeah, instead of going to college, I actually went to like a computer school where I learned uh, Java programming and I learned how to be a programmer. And it was during that time, one of my friends was like, hey, Mano, you know, will you teach me how to open a blog? And I was like, yeah, you just go to blogspot.com. It's like, no, but I want you to do it. And I think it's in that moment I learned the value of like assigning monetary value to like what you know, right? Like info knowledge is power slash money, right? And that was how like, you know, I created it for him. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I just create a blog and put all of this information that I have, right? So I, I started doing that. I did that. I total of four years before I then got employed to like the largest tech blog in Nigeria at the time, uh, Mobility Arena. So I became like a senior editor there for like two years. And then I also did radio as well. So I got the opportunity to have like a radio show where I got to talk about tech. And I remember our first episode being about Facebook buying Instagram for $1 billion back then. And we lost our minds, right? We were like, how do you spend $1 billion to buy like an Instagram, like a photo app? So I remember like being very passionate talking about, you know, that acquisition back then. So that was like my very first episode. So I got to do radio as well for like a year and a half before I then traveled here to Malaysia. And then, you know, I was like, yeah, I've been blogging for like, for like seven years now. I'm tired. I want to do something different. So I decided to do video, which, you know, prior to when I came to Malaysia, I'd only held like a digital camera, like once in my whole life. So I did not know anything. One day in the middle of the night, 
you know, I had took all my money and I bought like a super expensive gaming laptop at the time, you know, which was about 6,300 ringgit. It's like 2,000 plus 2014 US dollars. That's a lot of money, right? So I think I, I got home that night and I was like, hey, man, are you stupid? Like, how do you spend this much money on like gaming? Like, what? That's not you. I think that cognitive, I was trying to like, you know, cognitive dissonance myself into this is why you bought the gaming laptop, right? So I called my French group. <laughs> Did he shoot you? Love me, right? She said, Yes, I love you, man. Or then I was like, Okay, if you love me, you're gonna borrow me your camera because I want to shoot my first YouTube video. I just, you know, took the camera, I, I kept on flipping the dial till I saw something that did not look like total rubbish. And I was like, Okay, you know what? Yes, here we go. And that was how I started my YouTube channel. And you know, seven years later, apart from you know, shooting over 500 plus videos, you know, covering uh, about 150 plus brands, you know, working with some of the top brands that I would never have imagined, like you know, Acer, Acer, Samsung you know, doing lots of branded videos for them and, you know, going on a totally different journey. So it's quite interesting, right? Because when I was in Nigeria, my blog was The Imagination, right? So E-M-M-A, G-Nation. So Imagination, playing on my name, Emmanuel. Yeah. And like the, the website name was justimagine.com. So just E-M-M-A-G-E.com, right? So just imagine. So I was known as Imagine back then. And then when I came here, I was known as Geekception. And now there's sort of like a third rule brand where I'm like Captain Awesome now where I'm doing more lifestyle, you know, kind of videos with my running, with my intermittent fasting. So I started a new YouTube channel like last year where I decided, like, hey, you know, I've been running a lot. So, you know, I had the challenge to run 1,000 kilometers last year. I did that. This year, I, you know, I said, you know, higher, more. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do 2,000 this year. Right? So I've been documenting all of that. Yeah, so I started my own channel, like where I'm really pushing my own Captain Awesome brand right now, which is just like sort of an evolution of like my creative journey where, you know, before it was like just quantity, right? Like lots of videos. Like I think there was a time in 2017, I believe, or 18, where I uploaded a video every day for like 55 days. It was, it was an experience. Uh, I would not recommend <laughs> that one because uh, basically, you know, I had no life. That is not sustainable forever, right? So in mm. many ways, like, growing older, having different priorities, you know, even as growing as a creative as well, you know, to sum up um, quantity gives you the opportunity to, to discover your taste, right? So then when you discover your taste, then you can use quality to sort of refine it. I will come back to your uh, running and your nutrition because those are pretty high tech, especially because it's coming from you, a tech geek. <laughs> Right. But we'll come back to that. So recently, Apple had their uh, Worldwide Developers Conference. I saw you tweeting a little bit about it. Um, do you want to uh, summarize a little bit your thoughts on it? Thoughts? Oh. <laughs> One thing, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's both, right? There are positives and negatives, right? Positives in the sense that, you know, Apple keeps driving privacy in a world where it seems that everything is being spied upon and like where everything is being misinformed or disinformed or you know so apple has i think in many ways like you know charged a premium for it you know let's not you know confuse that but i've provided tools that has enabled your data to be your data at least comparatively to you know the industry google definitely you know with the worldwide developer conference apple was able to really you know make one thing which I think, you know, with how they released it, which is called private relay, right? So basically it's like the Tor process, right? Where mm. Tor is like a super private, even higher than a VPN uh, security when it comes to internet, but they've been able to take such complex and very not so user-friendly process and bring it into like every iPhone, right? Until like seven years ago, right? Which means that even an iPhone 7 or an iPhone 8, 
will be able to have secure communication that is double-blinded. It's even better in many ways than a VPN, right? Because a VPN, governments can request for your data and they can, you know, strong arm, you know, smaller VPN uh, companies to like, you know, hand over your data, right? But in this case, even Apple does not know what the data is, right? So I'll say that's a huge positive. The negative is that, you know, Apple still continues the very two-faced approach of where, you know, countries like China, Russia, you know, where, you know, stuff like that is still not available. You know, this is in terms with like how you, Tim Cook is, you know, gay, but in China, they ban gay apps on the app store and you know, they prosecute, you know, other you know, people like that. And you know, it's, it's very two-faced in a way where, again, we can come to the whole capitalism and all of that and all of that, but basically it feels very off. Right? So I, I would say that's one thing. And uh, another emphasis is in health. Though I think it really, doesn't really apply to like a lot of the world because so most of these tech companies, there's nothing there. And of course, they released like newer versions of their mobile operating systems, uh, which, you know, was for the iPad, for example, was quite controversial because, you know, they had, you know, put this very, very super powerful, I'll use a analogy that would, you know, everybody can relate to. Basically, you have a Toyota Corolla body and then you put the engine of a Ferrari inside. So people thought, oh, it's called Ferrari engine. It must be fast. And then Apple is like, yeah, no. <laughs> so, you know, there was some controversy there. So basically it's like, you know, all around, I would say another key takeaway is the security part. So I think with iOS 14 and moving on with iOS 15, which they just announced as well at WWDC, um, they've given you the ability to actually uh, know what apps are tracking you. So this basically led to like a huge, um, fight with uh, Facebook because Facebook tracks you everywhere. So Facebook actually like released notification in their app on iOS like, hey, you know, enable us to track you because this is how we keep it free. So it was like a thinly veiled threat, you know? So, so that was like a huge controversy there as well. But I, I think it's a huge step in the right direction, not just for ads and, you know, privacy alone, but I also think it will affect content creation as well, right? Because in many ways, the ad-supported um, services are, are free, right? So basically, you are the product. But what happens when they can no longer track you? Then they have to actually charge you, right? And if they have to actually charge you, then it has to be worth your money for them to you know, offer these services. So I think in many ways, maybe down the line, there will be like a change to, you know, even how Twitter right now is coming up with like a premium Twitter account where you can save stuff and, you know, there's more of those. I, I think we'll start to see more shifts industry-wise in that regard in where we'll be able to, you know, yes, we'll, you know, pay more. But again, are we paying more when we've already paid so much with all our data? It's, you know, it's very dystopian when we think about it. So we don't like to think about it. But I think as more, there's more sophistication with, you know, AI and, you know, predictive stuff. And we start to actually see the real impact of the amount of data these people have on us. And again, like the US election was a huge example, right? Of when Trump came into power, you know, the disinformation and how, you know, there was ultra targeting, right? I think the more everyday people start to see that, hey, wait, wait, hold on a minute. If I'm the product and like when I'm more valuable to these people than they let on, right? Like I think, yeah, there will definitely need to be a conversation. Maybe it will not mean that everything will be paid for, but I think it will spark a conversation where it's like, wait, hold up. You can't do this indefinitely, right? And in many ways, Apple sort of caught the time that that was going to happen because again, in North America, where Apple and you know, most of the paying customers or at least most of the customers that you know, generate a lot of value, in the US, for example, right, they can no longer track on iPhones. And that's a huge chunk of like their actual, you know, monetized customer. Right? So yeah, 
I would say Apple really quickened that process. So, and in response, Google also announced the same with the Android 12 operating system, where they said, yes, you know, you have privacy, but then people are like, wait, hold on a minute. You're the largest advertising company in the world. So how are you going to say you can provide privacy when you can see everything? Like how, isn't that like a conflict of interest? So it's, it's very funny when Google tries to pull moves like that, but, but they are pulling moves like that. They have announced new features in Android 12 that are able to give you more privacy focused features. For example, you know, apps that have access to your camera. So now it's an opt-in as opposed to an opt-out before. So at least up until Android 10, right? Android 11 sort of changed that. And with Android 12 now, they are all opt-in, which means that you have to tell that you have to enable the app that yes, you can track my location. Yes, you can track, which is crazy that it is just now that it's happening, right? 10 years later when all our data is online, right? In essence, WWDC has sort of been a shock to the system and just how privacy can really be you know, brought to the everyday person. And I think it's not gonna change, right? You know, the more people realize that, hey, I'm the product, hey, you're doing this, you're doing what now? Yeah, I think it will you know, spark that curiosity where they're gonna be like, okay, hold on, well, how much do you have? Okay, wait, wait, what, you have that much? Well, can you delete it? Or wait, what can you do with it? You know, so I think it will definitely spark that. Absolutely. So now let's uh, let's get a little bit more personal. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your activities, your your fasting and your running, which um, you log online. Um, obviously, with that kind of um, information, it's also in a way an extension of your personal data, isn't it? It may not be the most personal information. It may not be your blood type or your address and all of that, but it still tells, gives gives an idea, for instance, with your running, where you typically would frequent. So if I have bad intentions, I could be stalking you and pouncing you from the bushes as you run past me. If they are done that. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay, so, so tell me more about it. Tell me, how do you balance... Um, I mean, I mean, it's a it's a form of accountability, isn't it? When you log all this yep. information with your um with your nutrition and with your exercise, how do you balance your accountability to yourself, to your maybe your social group, and also um, ensuring your privacy and safety at the same time? Balance is is quite hard, right? Because we we both know, and I mean, most likely anybody you know reading your newsletter or you know, listening to this know that. It is very hard, like once you've put something online to take it back. So, you know, it's, it has to be a very determinant thing. So I would say for me, uh, when it comes to the content I put out, you know, I really, really do agonize a lot over stuff I put out. And if you notice, I'm not very personal, personal online, which means that you're not going to see my family, for example, on my social media feed. Um, you know, if I'm dating anybody, you're not going to see it there. You know, if I had a kid, for example, like most definitely you're never going to see that there. So in many ways, it's like I'm also quite conscious, right, in the sense that someone, for example, like my ex, right, my ex had no Instagram account, no Twitter, no Facebook, right, which is very rare in like 2021, right, like nothing. She had nothing. She only had WhatsApp. To her, like, I'm, of course, I'm like the most open person online because I'm like posting all this stuff. But like for me personally, like I know like, okay, there's certain things I don't post at all. In fact, this is the first time, like, I think the public will hear it for a while, but, you know, I make like one second videos every day. So I've been recording that for like a couple of years now. That will never make it out. But, you know, there are so many, so much more stuff that I've created than I've released. So as someone who is, uh, you know, 
a content creator online, someone who is just online in general, I know like I have to be very responsible with the stuff I put out. So as much as possible, I try to put out stuff that I know that, okay, if this were exposed, for example, right? Or if this were taken into a different context other than the context in which I created it, like, will I be cool with that? And, you know, if I'm cool with that, then I post it. If I'm not cool with that, then I don't post it. And also, you know, there's like, you know, digital hygiene, right? Which means that when it comes to tweets from like, you know, four years ago, five years ago, I usually like, you know, run like an auto deleter that deletes like past stuff because maybe they're not the most representative of who I am now. And we know like the online culture that we have currently right now, which is like, you know, you said something once that said, even today I was thinking about it, right? Like we don't, most of us don't have digital wheels, right? Let's say for me, like as someone who has like, I don't know, like 12 Google accounts, payment accounts spread across, like, I don't know, Stripe, PayPal, this, that, this, that, right? I have like my bank accounts, I have my robo advisors, I have like so many things my family would never know about. There really should be like a digital wheel where, you know, on my passing, like all my passwords, you know, all digital assets, I should be able to pass it on to, you know, someone, right? Maybe it's a nest of kin, maybe it's a friend, it doesn't matter who someone, right? So that it's not just lost, right? And imagine like there's so many people online today where, you know, we thought, oh, this person just stopped posting, but they're dead, they're no longer with us. It's a very green reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. And, you know, I think many of us never actually think of, you know, being able to let that data go as well, right? Even for me, right? I'm a obsessive tagger right like i tag stuff i have a, a second brain right i have an operating system of stuff where you know i have everything in it like my migration plans my values you know the stuff i'm doing you know my monthly reviews my quarterly reviews like you know when i pass or even currently right now let's say for the stuff i have of other people for example like do they not want me to have it anymore like you know how how does that work right you know, mm. it's, it's so many complexities i think maybe born out of the fact that we are still quite relatively young when it comes to the internet and when it comes to actually being able to handle all this, you know, zettabytes of data that we've created. So now it's like, okay, how do we sort through all this data? How do we categorize it? How do we sunset? Oh, we're supposed to sunset, right? For me, it's, it's still a very much a learning process when it comes to, you know, thinking beyond where we are now, but currently where we are now, it's still, when you put in anything out there, it is with the full consciousness that, you know, it is out of my hands. That in many ways, I can consider it luck, right? In a way, right? To, to be a cisgendered male, right? To where, you know, I don't have to face the challenge where some of my other people, for example, you know, people who identify as women will have to face when it comes to, uh, you know, harassment, you know, uh, sexual harassment as well, you know, because I, I managed my sister's Facebook for like the longest of times, right? Because again, I'm the tech support guy, right? Even up until like seven years ago, right? It was like, there was so much, you know, unsolicited photos of genitals. There's so much harassment when it comes to like, you know, uh, men demanding my sister's attention or time. And, you know, in many ways I'm lucky in the sense that I don't have to go through those experiences, but just because I don't go through them does not mean that I cannot, you know, uh, acknowledge that those things exist and mm. there should be a better way to like actually, you know, moderate content like that. So for example, when they don't even fit into like the standard body type, they get even more, right? So it's like, apart from, okay, we've let it out there. I really do believe that there should be a way for, you know, the platforms to be able to do something about it because definitely it's lacking. And I, I've seen my friend's mental space collapse just because mm. of some random person sent them some message that was just uncalled for, right? So in many ways, yes, while I may not experience those things because of just the privilege I have, I'll definitely, you know, acknowledge and push for better moderation tools and you know, better punitive measures for people who violate those rules and most mm -hmm. definitely, you know, something to change apart from what it is currently right now because 
what is there right now is just pure rubbish in many ways, right? You're right in saying that. Actually, I don't know much about you, despite thinking I know a lot about you based on our online uh, relationship, which is which is not not something that I could say um, to a lot of my other online friends. Like I actually do know a lot about them and their family and their friends and their you know history ten years ago. Um, as an online creator, I think you you create this parasocial relationship with your audience and, and we feel like we know you really well but you also because you're such a text savvy person you're able to guard your most private most personal information and, and keep that just for you and, and those that matter to you and I think that that's something that a lot of us should be more mindful of when we do anything online or offline in fact right um, I want to know your thoughts on the My Sujatra app Tell me the dirty details. What do you think of it? So I'm not going to get deported, okay? So, you know, um, I would say the concept was a good idea, right? Like, it was a good idea theoretically. Like, an app that is able to provide you updates, that you're able to see status around you, you're able to vaccinate yourself, you're able to check, you know, what is the latest news going on, you're able to, you know, it, it sounds great, right? It sounds like something where we sit in a boardroom, we're like, yes, do it. That is million dollars. Here you go. No. Right? Or in this case, <laughs> right? So in many ways, right? It's, it's a great idea in theory. In practice, though, yeah, not so much, right? In this, and again, as someone who knows the tech part of it, because I used to be a developer, right? So it's like many of these things, like I actually knew what the back end is like, right? It does show it's very ill-prepared, right? I mean, on the front end, it, it looks competent enough. It's not a bad app, right? But on the back end, it's definitely symbolic of many things that we've noticed in this pandemic, right? We might intellectualize about a, lot, a whole lot of this over podcasts, over calls, over Twitter, but the real reality is like these things affect real human lives, right? And if there's one thing that I've learned as a Nigerian, who, who lived and grew up in Nigeria, I've learned to see dysfunction firsthand. I grew up in a country where, you know, we had to provide our own electricity. We had to dig our own boreholes or our own wells. So a well or a borehole is, you know, a, a common site in almost every home in Nigeria. We had to pave our own roads. Um, we had to build our own schools. Uh, we had to, you know, do everything for ourselves, basically. Everything, everything. Like the government doesn't do anything for us, right? So in many ways, I know what dysfunction feels like, at least on a Nigerian level, right? I, I cannot hold an exclusive rights to dysfunction, you know? And hence why I'm no longer in Nigeria. But like, you know, coming to Malaysia, and it's quite, again, for me, as someone with that context and with that background, it is quite sad to actually see the dysfunction happen here as well. Because when I came here to Malaysia in 2013, it was with so much hope and so much glimmer and I mean, okay, I was 21 also, so I was young. So, but you know, it, the hope was there nonetheless, right? Because in many ways, like Malaysia held what Nigeria never was, right? Like in Nigeria, I had never had 24 hours of electricity for 21 years of my life, which means that I lived in Nigeria for 21 years and I have never had uninterrupted power supply, right? I came to Malaysia and yeah, there's uninterrupted power supply. Um, internet service was so bad. And I know in some parts of Malaysia, it's like that too, right? But in Nigeria, even in the cities is like that, which means that I had to have like four different phone lines because at different times of the day, let's say if you had like a mobile network, 
um, uh, you know, in the morning it will work perfectly fine. And then when it's 12 p.m., it got to switch the line to another line. So it, you can imagine how it is as a creative person there where you have to maintain four different lines and there's no guarantee they're going to work. Imagine in 2021, uh, in 2020, where we have the pandemic, everything has shifted online. So imagine how creators back there are having to cope now because it, it must be hell, right? Mm -hmm. And that's on top of no power, which means you have to provide your own power around the clock, you know, which means that there's a lot of noise pollution because there are generators everywhere. There's a lot of pollution pollution because there's a lot of pollutants from those generators everywhere. You know, back home, if we are traveling, you know, even 100 kilometers, we pray, you know, we literally pray, right? We, we're like, you know, God is going to guide you you know, you're gonna get there safe. And I came to Malaysia and it was a huge culture shock because like nobody prays when they travel. And I was like, what is that? You just go there. So, you know, that Malaysians don't even have to think about safety because you're safe, right? It's like, when you're not safe, it makes the news, right? It's like national news. So like in many ways, like when I came to Malaysia, there was a lot of hope and I've been able to capitalize on it, right? Like my, the hustle that Nigeria gives me because there's just so little. When I came here and I'm like, you mean I can just like do something and people, be like, okay, cool, take more. And that's how I was able to build my YouTube channel. That's how I was able to reinvent myself. I would not say I was a, you know, A-class celebrity or B-class celebrity, but, you know, I was a C-point D-class celebrity back home where, you know, you know, people would recognize me and all that. And I come to a new country where nobody, you know, cares at all, right? And it's like, I'm totally anonymous and you know, really work hard. And, you know, one thing I noticed here is due to the chill nature of Malaysia, I was able to like, you know, really, really make a lot of progress because many of people were just like, yeah, no, I want to go eat lunch now. So I'm going to go. But like for me, I don't eat lunch. I don't eat breakfast even, right? I barely even eat dinner because I was like so broke back then. So I was just like, okay, only one thing on my mind, just create stuff, create stuff, create stuff, right? I remember coming to Malaysia with like just, you know, $100 for like five months. And even when I started my YouTube channel and two years, I only ate bread like every single day. I have a container that now that has all the bread tags that I ate for two years, nonstop. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like I can do that, but like an average Malaysian who, you know, again in the city where I stay here, it's not gonna do that, right? Because oh my god, I've not had my breakfast, that the world is gonna end, right? So in many ways, like I was able to take advantage of that. So again, that's because Malaysia was a good enough place to do that, right? And in many ways, right now, coming back to you know the reason why I went into all my backstory is that I'm starting to see a lot of that dysfunction sip into Malaysia as well, right? So for me, it's actually not a like happy thing. When I see it on Twitter, right? When I see the politicians make all these outlandish statements, yeah, it's the same thing back home. Malaysia is at the point where Nigeria was in the 80s. Nigeria in the 80s, you know, our currency was better than the British pound. Uh, immigrants used to come to our country to come work because our country was such a high value country. We had like so many people travel abroad because it was actually cheaper to study abroad because our currency was so good. Go from that to where Nigeria now, we have a diaspora population of more than 15 million outside the country where, you know, most of us don't want to go back when we leave. You know, the, the government even worse than they, they were when I left. And, you know, inflation at such a high, I left the country, $1 was 150 Now $1 is 600 When I came here, my mom could send me money and I could pay for four subjects. And by the two years later, I could barely pay for one subject and eventually I could not pay for any subjects at all right so that happened right so in Malaysia I'm starting to see similar patterns and when it comes back to the nice Jetra app I think it's just like a you know a greater deep connection of just how dysfunctional things have gotten that this is normal now you know it's not outrageous anymore and you know it's it's the normalization that gets to you right you know it, it starts very very small 
you know, before you know it, you know, it's like the bare minimums and before you know it, it's like even worse, you know, and that's why, you know, all of a sudden, you know, photo shoots with Maggie now, it's like the new in thing right now, right? It's like, oh, we are one of you, but, you know, not really, right? So it's like, in many ways, it's like these things, yeah, we saw it too, right? It's like, for me, it's like deja vu, you know, I'm like, yeah, no, I've seen this, before. this is how it started. It's so scary. Like for me, it's like PTSD. You know? I'm like, okay, I escaped Nigeria. And it's like, oh my God, no, no. You know, like the clamp down on like foreigners, like, you know, fun story, not so fun story. In the nineties, like Nigeria actually expelled Ghanaian citizens, right? They said, hey, all Ghanaian citizens, we're tired of you. So it's, it's very xenophobic, right? We're like, we're tired of you. Come leave our country. That's not all. We told them to leave. And not only that, we named a bag after them leaving. So the name of the bag is called Ghana Must Go because we gave them that bag and told them, Ghana, go. You know, it's not only bad that we have deported them, we also named a symbol, like a bag, like till today, that bag is still called Ghana Must Go. So like when I see stuff happen here with migrants from like, you know, countries that, you know, are not uh, uh, white, when I see that happen, I'm like, yeah, no, hold on. You know, when I say deportation of someone who's been overly critical, same playbook, same playbook. It's actually quite sad because I believe in the potential of Malaysia. Mm. Like if Malaysia were a country where I could attain citizenship, if we're, if we're a country where I could get the opportunities that is not segregated according to my race or according to being a foreigner, I would, you know, in a heartbeat, right? what am I looking for? The weather is great. The people are great. The food is great. I mean, I love this and going to death. I, I, I would, you know, but it's, it's so frustrating in many ways that there's a huge disconnect between mm. the ruling class and then the, 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 you know, the common person, right, on the street, right? There's, there's a huge disconnect. And in many ways, I think my Sijatra is a perfect example of that disconnect, right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Nigeria quite a bit because um, I'm wondering if, uh, you have any thoughts about uh, Nigeria banning Twitter? Is it still banned? In, uh... It's still banned. <laughs> what is happening? I mean, Nigerian um, Twitter is, what, is so what? fun. Now I'm like, where, where's Nigerian content? <laughs> it, it, is, it is so fun. Yeah, Nigeria to the wall, you know what I'm saying? But uh, yeah, I guess it's just a combination of, um, you know, the rising authoritarianism in Nigeria and also uh, the rise of, you know, the same things we are seeing almost the world over, right? It's the other people, it's the migrants, it's the other tribe, it's, you know, it's, it's the others, right? And it's quite ironic because in Nigeria, the people who are, you know, uh, feel under threat the most are the people that have, like, the most government seats, right? They're the people that have the most states. So sounds familiar, right? Exactly. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's a combination of all that. And I think, you know, we spoke about how, internet is a leveler and perhaps the Nigerian youth or the Nigerian populace had leveled too much with the internet. So they were like, okay, you know, if they don't have this platform, because, you know, many of the older generation, for example, like to berate the younger ones. But time and time again, we have seen how movements have started, yeah, from niches, you know, corners of the internet, but they've spread very much to the everyday reality, right? You know, whether it's, you know, here, whether it's, you know, uh, 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 the protest, the, the yellow protest, right, that has happened over the years until, you know, the government actually changed. You know, it's like all of this were all like mobilized for the internet. You know, whether it was, it was back home where we as Nigerians have a perception of ourselves as very disorganized, as very corrupt. Like we have the self-image of ourselves, right? We're of, you know, as very docile, we don't do anything. 
And like, you know, during the NSARS protest, which was a protest against an arm of the police that had, you know, and continues to harass, you know, younger people in the country, you know, everybody like, you know, just from the internet and from Twitter specifically, we're able to mobilize. And, you know, when people got arrested, there were lawyers on Twitter that were able to like, you know, mobilize other lawyers to go bail them out. You know, when people needed money, they were able to raise about, I think, in excess of like six or almost seven million US dollars. And not only that, right, on like a traditional political budget, it was very transparent. They released all to the last cent accountable for every single thing. They hired like a third party auditor to audit them, like two third party auditors to audit them. The movement were led by women back home. The main faces of people who actually did a lot of stuff were like, you know, not traditional leaders in Nigerian context. So it broke a lot of preconceptions that we had about ourselves. You know, we always think, oh, we are very dirty, we are not clean. People actually, you know, brought brooms to protest, to sweep and clean up after themselves. And I was like, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know that meme where like, huh? what? You know, so it was it was very surprising for all of us. And I think it really spooked the political class back home. Like they really got scared, like, oh damn, like this is possible. So this was a, a response to that, right? Which meant that, yeah, you know, there is change from online platforms, right? And in, in many ways, like even when my mom would tell me back then, like 10 years ago, that Imano, why are you spending so much time on the internet? Eh? Ima, Ima, you're just spending all the all my money buying internet data. Why why are you doing all this? You know, like. For me, I've always sort of known that I know the power that, you know, being online gives, right? In the sense that it gives so much possibilities. Like, you know, if like you need to find something, you need help somewhere, you can just tweet it out and people would help. And it's, it's very quick, it's very fast, it's free also, right? So I think the political class in Nigeria, as a result of that, like we don't have a sedition act, for example, in Nigeria, that was you know, removed a while ago. And they've been trying to sneak it back, you know, it's not like they've not tried, but they've not succeeded. So, you know, as much as possible, it's illegal what they did by banning Twitter, but they banned it anyway, because we live in Nigeria where there are no rules and nobody obeys anything, right? Yeah, so in many ways, like again, coming to Malaysia, you know, we're starting to see heightened prosecution of, you know, different figures that don't toe the line or don't, you know, keep quiet or don't follow the typical, you know, okay, just don't complain too much about it or just don't make too much of a ruckus. Yeah, you can complain, but complain among your tiny little friend circle, you know? Don't come online here and, you know, make some you know, seditious statement, you know? Starting to see a rise of that, not just here, but in India as well, right? India is also modeling a Twitter ban as well. And, you know, in many ways, yeah, we're just seeing that authoritarianism, right? Because why not, right? Why not? Mm. All right, let's take a pause here and we'll come back with more of my conversation with content creator Emmanuel Olaleri, where he'll let us know what it's like to be a tech reviewer and how discrimination plays out in the wider tech industry. All of that on the starting block next week. Meanwhile, if you'd like to join me for conversations like this, get in touch at tinacamilla.substack.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. To the next one, goodbye for now. <laughs>